Amen. It's because of God's amazing grace that we are here today. Scripture says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, symbolize and celebrate our redemption in Christ. Understanding the ordinances is essential to appreciating and administrating these ordinances in the way that Jesus wants to as His church, as His gospel people. So we're going to take today and next Sunday to reacquaint ourselves, hopefully in a deeper way, with the two precious ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 is on page 784 in your pew Bible. In Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church. And then we are told just a few verses later that from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. At the end of Matthew 28, after the resurrection, before his ascension, Jesus gives this great commission to his disciples. Look at Matthew 28. Verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus kept His promise. And He did so by sending His Holy Spirit to be with His people and to empower His people to do what Jesus commissioned them to do. And so, in Acts chapter 2, we read that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Many of you are familiar with this chapter. Peter preaches the gospel to the thousands of people that are gathered there. 3,000 of them repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Those 3,000 are then baptized and added to the church. And then we read near the close of the chapter, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Jesus was building his church, just as he said he would. How did the Lord do this? Yes, 
through humble reliance on the Holy Spirit, through prayer, the main thing God used, the active agent, was the preaching of God's Word. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. God creates His church and God builds His church through the faithful preaching of the Word of God. It's important for us to know this. We might assume this to be true. We may never give a whole lot of thought to it, but I want to impress upon you the significance of that truth. Without God's Word, there is no church. And the implication is clear that when a church stops preaching God's Word, the people, the congregation may still get together. They may still do a lot of things. They may call themselves a church. But according to God, they are no longer a church if they stop preaching God's Word. Jesus declared in John eight thirty one, If you abide in my Word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide, continue in my Word, you are truly my disciples. So a primary trait of a true church is that it continues in God's Word. The Belgic Confession of Faith, written in the 16th century, correctly states, In short, if all things are managed according to the pure Word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known. Faithful preaching of God's Word, then, is the first and primary mark of a true church. The second mark which flows from that is the faithful administration of the ordinances. This has been recognized throughout church history. According to Scripture, Christ instituted two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The ordinances are visual aids that help us to better understand and appreciate what Jesus accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Sometimes the ordinances are referred to by another word, sacraments, which is fine. If by that we mean that the Lord blesses us, that He pours out His grace on us by enriching our faith and fellowship as believers as we celebrate the gospel through our participation in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now the reason many churches choose to use the word ordinance instead of the word sacrament, and our church is pretty much one of them. I may sometimes refer to them as sacraments, usually as an ordinance. is so that we avoid any confusion that could be caused by the Catholic use of the term. The Roman Catholic Church, and by that I mean not just someone that calls himself a Catholic. I'm talking about the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, teaches that there are not two sacraments, but seven. And that these sacraments are, and I quote, necessary for salvation, end quote. Folks, this teaching runs contrary to Scripture. For it reveals a works-based system 
and a sacerdotal approach to worship. The word sacerdotal comes from the Latin word for priest and literally means to make sacred. Sacerdotalism teaches that people cannot approach God on their own, but they must come to God through a priest in order to confess their sins, to partake of communion, to receive grace through these and the other sacraments. Now it's true that the Old Testament law placed the Jews under a sacerdotal system in which the priests represented the people before God. They offered sacrifices for the atonement of sin. But here's the important thing we must not miss. The Old Testament priesthood foreshadowed the future ministry of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Jesus fulfilled all that the Levitical priesthood anticipated and pointed to. When Jesus offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, what did God do to symbolize that barrier being broken between him and people? God tore the curtain in the temple in two, thereby indicating that we now had open access to God through Jesus Christ, through his blood that was shed for us. Hebrews 10, 19 refers to this as the new and living way that Jesus opened up for us by His blood. Jesus now occupies the office of eternal high priest. And that's why Scripture says in Hebrews seven twenty three to 25 there were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, His priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Brothers and sisters, sacerdotalism creates a human barrier between people and God that Christ through his sacrifice on the cross and resurrection has already eliminated. Scripture clearly teaches there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 Reminds me of a story that I heard of a boy that went down the street one day to play with his friend, knocked on the door, and nobody answered. And so we went back home, and he saw his friend the next day, and he said, where were you? I, I, I came to your house to, to see if you could come outside and, and play, and you weren't there. And uh, the boy said, oh, well, I was at confession. He said, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm Catholic, so I go to confession. And this boy who had gone to see his friend, who went to a Baptist church, was like, I don't understand. Like, what do you mean you go to confession? Like, I just confess my sins to God. The Catholic boy said, well, I go to a priest to make confession and then um, I do penance so that I can be absolved of my sins. And he said, well, if the priest sins, who does he go to? The Catholic boy thought a moment. He goes, well, uh, I, I think he would go to the bishop. He said, oh, well, if the bishop sins, who does he go to? Donnie says, well, I, th I think he goes to the archbishop. He said, well, if the archbishop sins, who does he go to? He says, I, well, he would go to the cardinal. Well, what if the cardinal sins, who does he go to? 
He said, I think he would go to the Pope. What if the Pope sins? Who does he go to? Who does he confess to? Well, he goes to God. He thought a moment and he said, Oh, I get it. So the Pope is a Baptist. <laughs> All joking aside, listen to me. The issue is not in terms of name, label, denomination, whether you are a Catholic or Baptist or anything else, but whether you are biblical. Peter tells all who have believed the gospel, you yourselves, he's writing to believers, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. One mediator, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Scripture teaches that all believers are priests, that Christ is our great high priest. We can go directly to God through Jesus. This doctrine is known as the priesthood of the believer. And therefore, we reject any sacerdotal approach to worship or sacramental system that views human works as necessary for salvation. The Bible clearly teaches that no ritual is necessary for salvation. And I took time to explain that because that's why many churches choose to refer to baptism in the Lord's Supper as ordinances rather than sacraments. They don't want to confuse the issue. Ordinances are God-ordained ceremonies that are not necessary for salvation but do rightly symbolize the gospel and help us as believers to celebrate the salvation we already have in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus ordained baptism with the accompanying sign of water as a ceremony for the church to observe. Two chapters earlier, in Matthew 26, as Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples the night before his crucifixion, he instituted the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, 26 to 28, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And thereby Christ ordained the Lord's Supper, with the accompanying sign of the bread and wine, as a ceremony for the church to observe. Now I'll say more about baptism in a moment, and we're actually going to continue our study of baptism next week, as well as the Lord's Supper. But first of all, I want to point out the relation between the Word of God, the primary and first mark of a true church, and the faithful administration of the ordinances, which is the second mark of a true church that flows from that first mark. God has designed it so that the Word of God and the ordinance of the church complement one another as we worship our God and Savior. To put it simply, 
God's word is directed to the ear, whereas the ordinances are directed to the eye. The gospel that we hear through the preaching of the word is symbolized, it is visibly portrayed before our eyes in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now the word and the ordinances are similar in that they both originate with God. They both point us to Christ and the gospel. And they both must be appropriated by faith. But the word and the ordinances are different in that God's word is essential for salvation, whereas the ordinances are not. God's word creates faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. God's word creates faith, whereas the ordinances do not create faith. They increase our faith, they strengthen our faith, they uh, develop our faith and deepen our faith, but they do not create faith. God's Word alone can do that. And the third difference is that God's Word goes out into all the world, preach the gospel to the whole creation, whereas the ordinances are for only those in the church. Those who have already embraced Christ as Lord and Savior and are gathered together to worship Him. So I hope this provides on kind of a broad level an understanding how the Word of God and the ordinances of the church, rightly preached, rightly practiced, are the marks of a true church. There's more to that. There's more to a church than that, but there is not less than that. And not only are they the true marks of a, or the marks of a true church, but they also complement one another as God has designed them to. And that's why I want to provide a a little bit of that introductory overview before talking about the ordinances specifically. So let's look a little more closely at baptism today. I'm so glad you're here. You know, it'd be very easy to say, well, I already know about the ordinances. I've been watching, you know, I was baptized years ago, been, been watching baptismal services for years, or we participate in the Lord's Supper regularly. But I'm telling you, as one who grew up in a Christian home, attended church, trusted Christ as an early age, was baptized, has been partaking of communion for most of my life, and has been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years, I gleaned a lot from my own study this past week. Certain things were new, certain things were Uh, Most of it was a refreshing reminder of things I already knew that made me really look forward to our next baptism service and our next communion service. And I hope this will have the same impact on you. So let's talk today about baptism. We'll continue the discussion next week, but begin by talking about the essence of baptism. The essence of baptism. To state it simply, baptism is the church's act of affirming a believer's profession of faith in Christ with the symbolic application of water. That's a simple definition. That's my definition based on God's Word and looking at a lot of other helpful definitions. Let me read it to you again. Baptism is the church's act of affirming a believer's profession of faith in Christ with the symbolic application of water. The three lines in this definition, or three sections, I guess it is on the the slide, I broke down in that way so as to highlight three aspects of the ordinance that I want to emphasize to you this morning. First, it is the church's act. 
That is to say, first of all, that you don't baptize yourself. As someone else does it with you or for you, someone else does it to you, acting on the church's behalf. So there's always two parties involved. Of the person being baptized and the person who is baptizing the person on the church's behalf. You say, why on the church's behalf? Can't I just go out as a believer and baptize anybody that professes faith in Christ? That's a good question. Let me say this. Prior to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which we read moments ago, Jesus made it clear that he gave the church, not individual Christians, the authority to make official declaration on heaven's behalf. He gave to the church the keys of the kingdom. After telling his disciples in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, Jesus went on to tell them in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Jesus isn't talking about small groups. He's talking about local churches. Jesus gave his heavenly authority to the gathered church. And we have to keep this context in mind when we look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. In verse 18, Jesus reminds his disciples who are gathered together there with him that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And then in verses 19, 20, Jesus says, Therefore, on this basis of of my ultimate authority, go. I'm commissioning you. Make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Then in that last verse, verse 21, Jesus reassures the disciples that He will be with them until the end of the age. So the the context of Matthew as a whole, especially in these, these culminating chapters of his book, make it clear that Jesus gave authority to the church to baptize believers. Baptism is an ordinance of the church. It is the church's act of affirming a person's profession of faith in Christ. And that takes us to the next point, which is emphasized in the second line of this definition or description of baptism. It is the church's act of affirming a person's profession of faith in Christ. Scripture makes it clear that personal conscious faith in Christ is prerequisite to baptism. As Peter concluded his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, which I alluded to earlier, he told the people to repent and then be baptized. And those who received his word repented and were baptized. You'll see that this is the pattern throughout all the book of Acts as as the church continues to expand and grow. People believe and then they are baptized. Baptism always follows belief. Belief in the Word of God, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the only people whom the New Testament specifically identifies by name as having been baptized, were adults at the time of their baptism. Now that is not to say that someone still living in their parents' household cannot be baptized, but it is saying this. Someone must be old enough to comprehend, to understand the good news concerning Jesus Christ, consciously repent 
of his or her sin and intentionally put his or her own faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their own sins. A person must be old enough to understand the gospel, to repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ for salvation. I'll touch on that a little bit more next week, but this takes us to the third component of this definition or description of baptism. It involves the symbolic application of water. Now, throughout church history, there have been various views regarding how this water should be applied, whether by immersion, pouring, sprinkling, and in some cases, dabbing. As we consider the proper mode of baptism, at least two key factors must be considered. The meaning of the word baptize and the message that baptism is intended to convey. So let's talk first of all about the meaning. Our English word baptize is a transliteration. It is a direct carryover from the Greek word baptizo. A transliteration is you simply take a word in one language and you bring it over to the other language and whatever letters in English line up best with the letters in Greek, that's what the word is in English. That's called a transliteration. It is a direct carryover from one language to another. And that's what is the case with our word baptize. It's a, it's a carryover from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip, to immerse, to submerge, as even in terms of a sunken vessel, to make fully wet. This is the original and primary meaning of the word, which is an intensified form of the Greek word bapto, which means to dip or to die. They would stick objects in dye and dye, so, but they were submerged in the dye in order to color them. And this word bapto is used only four times in the New Testament, and it's never used in reference to Christian baptism. Uh, one of the instances is, is uh, might be familiar with is, is a story where uh, the rich man asked Abraham if Lazarus can dip his finger in water to, to cool the rich man's tongue because he was in torment. Okay? Another couple of instances are the accounts where Jesus dips the morsel of bread in the cup, whether it be the wine or the, 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 the meat broth, and gives it to Judas. And then in Revelation, it, it talks about the king whose robe was dipped in blood. That's the word bapto used, but it's never used in reference to Christian baptism, but it's intensified form, baptizo, which means to dip, to plunge, to immerse, to submerge, to make fully wet, is used over a hundred times in the New Testament and only except with very few instances always refers to Christian baptism, either our spiritual baptism or how it is symbolized in the act of baptism, water baptism. Although Martin Luther and John Calvin did not see immersion as essential for baptism, both acknowledged that immersion is the basic meaning of baptizo and that immersion was the original form of baptism practiced by the early church. The descriptive language of the New Testament suggests this. For instance, we're told that John baptized at Aenon because there was plenty of water. 
When Jesus was baptized by John, we're told in Mark 1.10 that Jesus came up out of the water. Upon hearing the good news of salvation through Christ, the Ethiopian eunuch said to Philip in Acts 8, Look, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Then we're told in verse 38 and verse 39, they both went down into the water and Philip baptized him and then they came up out of the water. These descriptions are consistent with the meaning of the word baptizo, which means to immerse. And this meaning of the word fits perfectly with the message that baptism is intended to convey. The first message being, the believer's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the foremost way that the Apostle Paul speaks of baptism throughout his epistle. His epistles. In Romans 6, the passage that Brother Dave Welker read earlier in our service, the Apostle Paul says in verses 3 to 4, writing to believers, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Immersion, more than any other mode of baptism, symbolizes the spiritual reality of our union with Christ by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. If you're a regular attender here at Webster Bible Church, you've seen me do it many times in our own baptismal service. Buried with Jesus by baptism into death. Raised to walk in newness of life. Uh, symbolic representation of the great work that God has done in our life. Visibly portrayed through us in the act of baptism. In Colossians 2.12, Paul says the same thing, that we have been buried with Jesus in baptism and raised with Him through faith. In fact, our union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection is so intense that in Galatians 3.27, Paul tells believers, you were baptized into Christ. Our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, our baptism into Christ then becomes the source of unity for all who have believed in him. All who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So much so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. The body of Christ. In his helpful booklet, Understanding Baptism, one that we uh, pass out to baptismal candidates here at Webster Bible Church, Bobby Jameson emphasizes this point saying, and I quote, So, in baptism, a believer commits him or herself to both Christ and his people. In putting on the team jersey, you commit to playing on the team. In baptism, you step out of the world into the church. There is no in-between zone where you're out there with Jesus, but not yet with his people. To join yourself to Jesus is to join his people. Baptism then is a commitment to follow Christ in the company of his church. End quote. So our union with Christ, and thus also with his people, is the main spiritual reality conveyed 
through the ordinance of baptism. But it's not the only reality. There's another related reality, and that would be the believer's purification from sin. This, too, is symbolized in baptism. In Acts 22, as Paul shares his own personal salvation testimony, he talks of how Ananias came to him and said, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It wasn't the water that washed Paul's sins away, but his calling on the name of the Lord. For Scripture says, and Paul himself says so in Romans ten thirteen. For anyone or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Likewise, Peter writes in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 21, Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism symbolizes the spiritual cleansing that we receive as we cry out to God, acknowledging our sinfulness, our need for salvation, the salvation that Christ has provided through His death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And we call out to God in humble faith, asking Him to save us. He does. He cleanses us from all our sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, cleanses us from all sin. And baptism pictures that cleansing. Titus 3.5 doesn't use the word baptism, but it speaks of the washing of regeneration. We often sing about this, even in the church. What can wash away my sins? What's the answer? Exactly right. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the waters of baptism. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But the waters of baptism symbolize that wonderful spiritual cleansing that has taken place through faith in Christ. Another song that we sing shifts our focus from our own salvation to that of others, those around us, as we are burdened that they too be saved. Perhaps you've heard this hymn, Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's the most important question that can ever be asked of any person. And I ask you here today, what's your answer to that? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? His arms are open wide. He says, all who come to me will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This washing is best symbolized by immersion, not by sprinkling or pouring. A few days ago, I washed up one morning. I want you to know I wash up every day. I, I take a shower or a bath or something every day. Most days. And a few days ago, I, I knew I was going to be working on doing some stuff, so I just like washed up in the morning. But that night, I got a bath. Before getting out of the tub, I submerged myself underwater, head to toe. See, in the morning, I got a partial cleansing. But in the evening, I got fully cleansed. And that's what baptism is intended to convey. 
I find it interesting that the Reformed theologian Karl Barth, who was not a Baptist, wrote, and I quote, The Greek word baptizo originally and properly describes the process by which a man or an object is completely immersed in water and then withdrawn from it again. One can hardly deny that baptism carried out as immersion as it was in the West until well on into the Middle Ages showed what was represented in far more expressive fashion than did the effusion, the pouring, which later became customary especially when the effusion or pouring was reduced from a real wetting to a sprinkling and eventually in practice to a mere moistening with as little water as possible. End quote. Convenience? I don't know. It just became a thing to do maybe easier for the clergy, for people getting baptized. I want to point out something in my definition that was carefully worded and with which some of you might disagree. I had baptism as the church's act of affirming a believer's profession of faith in Christ with a symbolic application of water. I purposely didn't say by immersion. Because I don't think there is airtight evidence in scripture that baptism always without exception was always immersion you can debate that point if you would like i don't think it's the essence of baptism but it is the rule it's the normative mode of baptism we certainly see throughout the new testament it's supported by the new testament scriptures it was practiced throughout church history even infant baptism which i'll talk about last week for centuries in the church, was done by immersion. Long before sprinkling or pouring, is my understanding. Millard Erickson wrote, quote, While immersion may not be the only valid form of baptism, it is the form that most fully preserves and accomplishes the meaning of baptism. End quote. And with that statement, based on what I see in Scripture, I heartily agree. As I was preparing for this sermon, my wife warned me, Honey, when you've been out of the pulpit for a few weeks in your first, it's your first time back, you tend to go on a bit long. <laughs> I hope that hasn't been the case this morning, which is why I deliberately uh, stopped the message here before really completing all that I want to say. I want to save that for next week. And pray hard that I'll be able to get in the rest of this message on baptism with the message on communion. We'll look at some errors pertaining to baptism that exist in many churches and denominations today. And I think it's important to touch upon those and to delve into them at least a little bit, even though we cannot do so extensively. Pray for me as I prepare, and I'll be praying for you as we participate in worship together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Lord, if you had not revealed yourself to us, it would be impossible for us to know you. 
if you had not sent your son, the living word, to live a perfect life of obedience for us, to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and raised on the third day, to be ascended into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for us, we would have absolutely no hope of salvation. For our Lord himself said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Father, even as we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, who, even when we don't know what to pray, helps us how to pray as we should, we're thankful that we don't need to go through anybody else but Jesus to get to you. Father, thank you for making us, by your grace, a holy priesthood. Your own special people who can come to you directly, anytime, any place, under any circumstance, through Jesus Christ, your Son. God, forgive us for taking this amazing, breathtaking privilege for granted for being slack in prayer, for being self-sufficient when we have a troublesome day. When we pray in a lack of faith, maybe in a cursory manner, not really believing that you'll come through for us. Lord, there are so many things that we could confess to you this day and plead your mercy for. And yet we rejoice even now that we are praying directly to you, God our Father, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Oh Lord, we thank you for this. Thank you for saving us by your grace. Lord, I pray for anyone listening to today's message in this room or maybe at some point on the radio or perhaps watching online that they would not take offense if something in their own belief or practice does not line up with your word. Help us, Lord, to be humble enough to examine our views in light of your word, to subject ourselves to your word, and not just be willing to change, but be excited to change, knowing that your ways are always best. Lord, if there's anything I said that was confusing or in a person's perspective out of place, I ask that you would remove any barrier that I might have accidentally put in front of anybody. For we we don't want any obstacle to be between anyone and you. We thank you that you have made that way for fellowship, for reconciliation, for eternal life through the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose blessed name we pray. Amen.